This podcast is sponsored by Doc2Doc, the personal lending platform designed for doctors by doctors. Doc2Doc believes that traditional lenders overestimate the risk of lending money to doctors, focusing too much on the challenges of their financial past and giving them insufficient credit for the promise of their financial future. On the Herd podcast, our goal is educating, empowering, and engaging our listeners, including doctors, in the best ways that we can. We love what Doc2Doc is doing within our community and encourage you to visit their website at www.doctodoclending.com. That's www.doc, the number two, doclending.com forward slash FPD to learn more today. A 48-year-old woman is sitting in a meeting at work. She starts to feel warm and looks around at her colleagues. Everyone else seems to be fine. Why is she feeling so hot? She feels her skin is getting flushed. She zones out for a few seconds as she starts to sweat and picks up her water, just as someone calls her name. What did they ask her? She feels caught off guard but gains composure and responds as she continues to feel beads of sweat rolling down her face. After the meeting, she realizes something similar happened just a few nights ago as she was tossing and turning, having a hard time sleeping. She also realizes that she had missed her last period. Could this possibly be the start of menopause? Welcome to The Hurt by Dr. Mira Kirpaker and Dr. Alopi Patel. We are the female pain docs. This is a platform to contribute to the public discourse on women's pain and general health. We are here to empower women and men to engage in the advancement of their health with discussions of evidence-based medicine, unconventional topics, lifestyle modifications, and more. The views contained in this podcast are our personal views and do not represent the views of our institutions. This does not substitute medical advice. Please be evaluated by a physician if necessary. Welcome, Dr. Kasperson. We appreciate you for being on today's episode. You have a lot of expertise in sexual health, but today we're really going to pick your brain about all things menopause. Now, I've personally listened to many of your episodes, and they're so enlightening. Can you please tell our listeners, both old and young, what exactly is menopause? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. So I got into menopause because of sex, which is probably like the most interesting way to get into menopause. But people were just kept asking about it. So that's how I ended up getting menopause certified. The definition of menopause is one day in a woman's life. And it's the 366th day after her last natural period. So you actually have to discover when you were, you know, your day of menopause in hindsight, right? Because if it's been nine months, are you going to be? We don't know. And the other problem with that definition is a lot of people have had hysterectomies or uterine ablations or they have IUDs, right? So for many people, it's not a great definition. But average age of menopause in Western countries is 51. So average, right? People think like, oh, I'm early if I'm 50. It's like, no, no, no. Average is 51. That means 50% are before that. 50% are after that. Um, so that's what menopause is. And then forevermore, you're post, you're technically post-menopause. But I think in the in the language, people will just say, I'm in menopause, meaning they don't have uh, natural periods anymore. And you mentioned that in the Western world. Can you clarify that a bit more? That's so interesting that people might have different ages of menopause depending on where in the world they are. Yeah, I don't actually know much about that. I think it's more just countries that can act, will actually study this and have age ranges. It's I don't think it's because the ages are all that different, but they'll just say America's 51, Canada's, you know, 51, UK's 51. It's just the countries that I've seen. But I, I don't I don't take that to mean it's much different anywhere else. I, I think we just have data 
That's interesting to note. And we're going to get into this a little bit as well in terms of what can affect menopause and foods and hormones and whatnot. So I would be very interested to see that as well. But can you tell us before we really get into the nitty gritty for our listeners, what exactly are the hormonal changes and the effects that happen in the body? Yeah, I think it's really important education because so many people think that menopause is just a hot flash, right? And what menopause is, it's is it's the natural lowering of hormones enough for which you can no longer get pregnant, but a lot of other things or no longer ovulate, right, to get pregnant. But a lot of other things happen. And it's not a you're all good and then Tuesday happens and you have no estrogen. It's really what they call perimenopause. Perimenopause is the years surrounding menopause. So if you're like, hey, I'm 46 and I'm having these symptoms. It's probably perimenopause, right? But there's no tests for that. And perimenopause is really reverse puberty. So it's not like, I'm good, I'm good, I have no estrogen. It's literally up and down and up and down. And I think people are so obsessed with checking labs. Like, let's check labs. Let's see where we are. Let's check labs. And if you check labs on a Tuesday and then you check labs three weeks from now, they're going to be different when you're in perimenopause. They're going to be fluctuating. It's literally like, it's high, it's low, it's high, it's low. The ovaries are trying to keep going. The FSH is trying to keep the ovaries going, right? So perimenopause, they don't recommend checking any labs because of this reverse puberty roller coaster that you're on. That's so interesting to know. And there are hormonal fluctuations in women all throughout their life pretty much, right? So we have these daily as well as monthly fluctuations. And then once we get to menopause, it's in the reverse direction, which I never really saw it that way. That's a great way to put it in terms of reverse puberty. Yeah. The other, I mean, the other interesting thing about it is when we think of menopause, we think of estrogen going down, progesterone going down. We don't ever think of testosterone. And the reason for that is we've gendered the hormones, right? How often did you learn in medical school? Oh, estrogen's the female, testosterone's the male. And it's really not true. You know, men have estrogen, women have testosterone, and your testosterone will also slowly, more slowly than your estrogen, will start to go down. And that can affect things like your vitality, your sex drive. You know, there's probably more to bone health and muscle mass and cognition with testosterone, but we do not have great data on that. Again, I think because we gendered the hormone. Right. If it if it doesn't exist in women, why, how can we possibly study it? But it does indeed exist. It just exists at one tenth the male dose. And then that also goes down. And that's such a good point for our listeners to understand that there isn't just estrogen in females and testosterone in males. There's just so many variations in terms of the, the hormone itself. Something that I wanted to address that we have a bit of overlap in is pain, right? So estrogen, we know, can play a big part in migraines all throughout a woman's life. So from your perspective, what are your thoughts on what happens to chronic pain conditions once menopause hits? Studies have shown, you can kind of look at the studies and say, estrogen tends to be anti-inflammatory and estrogen tends to be a lubricant, right? So if you just think of it like that, we see a lot more joint pain, a lot more aches and pains in musculoskeletal go up in the perimenopause, menopause. We see more autoimmune diseases come up in women post-menopause. So certainly estrogen is doing something and then it's lack of it. You see way more of these, these things go up, let alone like, you know, risks of fractures which cause pain. So yeah, estrogen is great because it's an anti-inflammatory and it's a lubricant for the joints. And another thing I wanted to clarify, because you had mentioned uterine ablation as well. So there's natural menopause, if that's the correct way to put it, as well as surgical menopause, right? So could you tell our listeners about the difference between that? 
Yeah. So surgical menopause means the removal of the ovaries, nothing to do with the uterus. So that, that tends to be called a complete hysterectomy. If people say partial, I hate those words. I'm not a gynecologist. I have like no loyalty. I'm like partial hysterectomy. It doesn't make any sense, but basically what it means is only your uterus came out versus total hysterectomy means the uterus and the ovaries came out. The ovaries are the organs that produce these hormones. So it doesn't matter what you do to your uterus. Um, it's when your ovaries are removed. Now the studies are mixed on symptoms of menopause post-surgical versus natural. Some people will say it's a lot more abrupt, right? I had my ovaries out on Tuesday and it was immediate hot flashes, lethargy, you know, all the feelings. Um, and then some people say, hey, you know, there's some studies that say sex drive isn't all that change that much versus surgical versus natural. It doesn't really matter. So studies are mixed. But yeah, it's a lot more because you think of the natural fluctuations of the hormones, right? You're abruptly ending it on Tuesday with surgery can be a little more dramatic in like onset of symptoms for a woman. That's such an interesting point, too, that there isn't enough research done on this, right? So many aspects of women's health need more research, unfortunately. And I'm so happy that there are podcasts such as one that you host that is creating this conversation. Hopefully we also start creating energy and resources to look into all of these things, right? I like that we're changing that arena. When can women start preparing for age-related menopause? Is that even a thing that we can kind of, you know, women in their 30s or 40s prepare for? I think it's a great question. Education is never bad. And how many 50-year-olds do I meet, 70-year-olds that I meet who had no idea what menopause was? They had no idea the consequences on their body by low estrogen, right? And so it's like, if that age group's uneducated, why not let 20-year-olds know that this is a natural, normal blessing because it means you lived long enough, right? And really just reframing and reframing in our culture too, like this, this crappy culture of anti-aging is just so messed up into what naturally happens to our bodies, plants, animals, the earth in general, right? Like the marketing's horrific. And I think the, you know, where, where smart companies are going is, is healthy aging, aging well aging on your own terms. They're really getting rid of this anti-aging stuff because if we if we say men, you know we want to anti-age then menopause is a really bad thing. So, I'd say just, you know, we teach young girls about periods, we teach them about pregnancy, we teach them about all the stuff we do not teach them about menopause. You're absolutely right and I love that. I love that you said that it's a blessing that we're able to to live to that age to experience it. And if you think about it, a significant part of our life, and if you consider 51 as this average age, almost equivalent amount of time spent, you know, after puberty up to menopause and then menopause up to death, right? If it's mid 80s, it's a long period of our life. Yeah, it really is. Three decades or more, right? If we're lucky. And to not know the consequences of low estrogen are on our body and be able to make the choice of do I want to keep taking hormones or do I not? Like empowerment is never bad. And the, that decision, I'm not here to say what women should or should not do, but I'm here to say like, don't fear what happens to your body normally, right? And be as healthy as you possibly can. And you mentioned low estrogen. So low estrogen can manifest physically in many different sort of ways. Like you mentioned hot flashes. We are all about pelvic pain. We love seeing our pelvic pain patients. Tell our patients what that may mean in terms of pelvic pain, their vulvar health. So we used to call it vulvovaginal atrophy. Nobody liked the word atrophy. So now we call it genital urinary syndrome of menopause, which is a big mouthful. But basically after 
menopause, but it can also happen perimenopause. So it's you're not breaking any crazy rule if this happens to you and you're still getting periods. But you can start experiencing vaginal dryness, vulvar itching, perianal itching, um, worsening of urinary tract infections, burning when you urinate, and painful sex. Dryness, I don't get lubrication anymore. All that stuff is because that estrogen is changing. Now, on average, this happens between 50 and 80% of individuals post-menopause. That's huge. It's tons. This is not 10% of people are going to suffer this. This is on average or more than average, this is going to happen to you unless you supplement your pelvis with estrogen. So I really, we really see it kicking in five to eight years post-menopause. So if you're 58 and you're like, why am I getting UTIs and I've stopped having sex and it burns when I pee, probably you're experiencing the symptoms of low estrogen in the pelvis. That's a really good point. And there are a lot of myths associated with estrogen, right? It's such a loaded word, I feel like, in terms of breast cancer and cancer in general. Can you tell our listeners about that and not to be afraid of necessarily supplementing with estrogen? Yeah. Um, so we did a big disservice in this country and in, in, in the world in 2001. Not we like I, but we like the people who help, who are supposed to be helping women. And what we did is we said a hormone that your body naturally makes is trying to kill you, right? And so we basically scared everybody and it's just in the, it's just in the ether now, right? It's starting, women are starting through, you know, podcasts and education and people being miserable in menopause and figuring out what to do. They're starting to realize that it actually isn't that scary. We have tons of great data now. The Women's Health Initiative is the big study that scared us on estrogen. It turns out that the study was never powered to look at estrogen and breast cancer, right? It's very interesting to go into that study. That study was, uh, was supposed to be a primary prevention study looking at estrogen and heart disease. So the placebo group, you know, people weren't randomized to for their risks of breast cancer. Turns out the women who took the estrogen actually had a lower risk of breast cancer and had better survival if they got breast cancer. That did not make the media. What the media loved was telling everybody that estrogen caused breast cancer. So I'll see these women in my clinic and they'll be like, well, I don't know about estrogen because it causes cancer. And I'll ask them because I'm curious and I want to see where they're coming from. I'll be like, well, who, who told you that? Where, where can you tell me that that's a fact? They have no idea. Like that's, that's how a myth gets so pervasive is like, you can't even tell me where it came from. They just know it's scary. And I'm like, well, actually, it's it's not that scary at all. Most people can take estrogen. And especially, you know, going back to the genital urinary syndrome of menopause, that's local pelvic estrogen that's not absorbed. It's much lower than even systemic estrogen after menopause, which is much lower than birth control, right? So people need to understand what we're talking about is very, very small doses of hormones. And the hormones we put in the vagina to help the bladder and the vulva and the vagina aren't even going into your body. That is just so important, I think, for our listeners to take away, because even before we started the female pain docs and self-educating a lot about women's health and pelvic pain, I was under the same understanding when family members were going through menopause and their doctors would offer them estrogen, like, oh no, you know, it's associated with breast cancer. And it's just so pervasive, like you said, and now we're unlearning as a society and as empowered women and physicians that that's not necessarily the case. In terms of the other symptoms, so we talked about vaginal and vulvar health. What are what are some other lifestyle modifications that women can make to help deal with perimenopausal symptoms? So in terms of diet or exercise? Yeah. Exercise is great. We got to keep our bone health, muscle health up, right? Plus it's so great for the mood. So exercise is paramount. And again, 
when I talk to pe- women in their 50s, I say, who do you want to be when you're 70? Right? Who do you want to be? And you want to be like you are now, like super smart, highly functional. You've, you know, you've got this great intellectual life you lead. You're active, right? And most people, that's how they see themselves in the 70s. And they don't realize like you don't get there by default. You get there by the lifestyle choices that you that you have, right? And like one 70-year-old is very different from another 70-year-old. And I think people don't get this insight. You know, I have the privilege of like seeing 25 people a day and seeing how people age, right? But like you can really mess up and every 18-year-old kind of looks the same, right? But like our choices that we're choosing in our midlife really set the stage for how we age. So exercise is paramount. It's great for stress reduction. It's great for mood. It's great for bone health, muscle health. So I'd say exercise, um, sleep, protect your sleep at all costs. Really sleep get, really does get affected in the perimenopause and menopause world and to protect it. Um, and then alcohol. Like, I I can't think of one good reason that anybody should drink. And going back to the estrogen scare, if you're truly scared of breast cancer, which we can get into, breast cancer is scary, but highly curable, right? Very curable disease. We're not scared about heart disease. And that's the number one killer of women. Nobody's scared of heart disease. And it's the number one thing that kills you. So like, to me, I'm like, "Ah, are we scared of the wrong things, right? Um, If you're truly scared, so let's go back. Let's say you're truly scared of breast cancer. Exercise decreases it. Alcohol increases it. Increased body fat percentage increases it. What are we doing to our bodies that actually decrease our risk of breast cancer, right? If you're truly scared of breast cancer, you should not be drinking alcohol. It's a known carcinogen associated with seven cancers, right? You should be exercising. You should keep your lean body weight up and your adipose tissue down. It's inflammatory and uh, insulin resistance and our metabolic health is incredibly important. So long-winded to be like, just be healthy. (laughs) You can't beat up your body anymore and expect the same outcome than if you, you know, were beating it up when you were 21. I love that. It's like, it's like running a marathon, right? Our bodies are preparing, not just for this one insular event sort of thing, but basically life after menopause as well. And it involves lifestyle modifications on daily sort of understanding as well in terms of nutrition, exercise. That brings me to my next question. I had a friend that was going through menopause a couple of years ago and she came up to me and she said, well, you do all of this pelvic pain stuff. What should I be eating? And I'm like, what do you mean what you should be eating? So soy and, you know, basically foods in terms of increasing estrogen. What are your thoughts on that? And what would you recommend for patients to help with perimenopausal symptoms? I'm not a nutritionist, but from what I can read, like, again, we scared women off of estrogen. We said soy has isoflavoins, which is like a remote cousin of estrogen, which is hardly even active in our bodies, right? It's like, we're scared of the wrong thing. Like, knock it off. As far as diet goes, stay away from sugar. Like, sugar really is the problem. And it's like, we, we want to get all complicated and then beat ourselves up for, like, not following a super complicated thing. And it's like, processed crap, just don't eat it. More vegetables is better. Vegetables are hard for me, so I totally get it. <laughs> and I love sugar. But, like, if keep it simple. It's like, refined processed stuff is bad for the body. Absolutely. And for chronic pain. We know that there are multiple studies. It's just bad for chronic pain in general. Really? Yes. Oh, that's interesting. Processed oh, food is bad. Alcohol is not good for pain processing. Everything that you said that's good in terms of helping with menopause symptoms, removing alcohol and exercise and all of that is pretty much also associated with better improvement in chronic pain as well. Exercise is really, really good for chronic pain. 
move the body. Yes, get that dopamine, you know, going. So absolutely, I love that. What is something that you wish younger women knew about menopause? Let's say somebody in their 20s who are like thinking this is the best they're ever going to have their life and their body. And what should they know about menopause, even though it might seem like a distant subject? What I would do is I take, you know, advice from the people who are thriving, right? And they're like, listen, I'm not raising babies anymore. I'm focused on my career. I know what's a yes for me and what's a no for me. I'm doing what I want in life. Like it really becomes this time where it's about you. We are we are gendered and socialized into being these nurturers and we take care of everybody else. And we realize at some point, if I don't start taking care of myself the best way I can, I can't take care of anybody else, right? And it really becomes this empowerment place where it's like, you don't have to worry about getting pregnant anymore. You don't have to worry about, you know, having a, another kid that's going to take another 20 years. And that's different for everybody, right? Like some people have challenges getting pregnant. And then when menopause looms, it's kind of like the stress is even worse. And that's, that's a separate struggle for probably a different podcast. But I'd say for a lot of women, they're like, this is now my time. The kids are out of the house. They might not be if you had late kids like me. But like you get to a point where you're like, if I don't take care of myself and I don't worry about pregnancy anymore, I'm gonna have, I'm gonna have what do I want this to look like? I've gotten decades to live the best life possible. Like it really can be an empowering time of life. And and many, many women will say they just don't give a crap what other people think as much anymore. Like there's something there, and you know, they'll argue, they're like, is that at low estrogen? Does low estrogen do that? I don't know. We need more studies. But like somewhere between like, I did that. I cared about everybody else over taking care of myself for years. And now it's time to take care of me. So menopause is a transition and it can be a beautiful, empowering transition. It's like this new chapter in a woman's life where you don't have to worry about getting pregnant, like you said, and don't worry about anybody else's opinions and possibly have less to handle in terms of kids and whatnot. It seems like an exciting time. I don't know. You make it seem really fun. <laughs> I mean, I think that, you know, what we know is women who are supported through this, right? They have doctors who are educated. They have friends who say, yeah, me too. I understand that. Like really having a support structure, which does, it's stinky in our country. It's stinky all over the place. Um, the UK is doing it better than America right now. They're way more, they've got their national health service, like dialed up better, not perfect, but better on menopause because they really realize we need to support these women because they are dropping out of the workforce and it is a financial problem for our country. And so, of course, you know, you could argue like, oh, now we care because the women aren't making the money. But it's like, what, whatever, whatever makes us pay attention and care for women is great. But like, it's a financial on a country nationwide problem if women aren't cared for in menopause. So the support system is, is important. You can't do it. You can't do it alone because then you think you're the only one and that's not fun. No, absolutely. And of course, it's when it comes down to the economics of it, that the attention is there. But like you said, as long as we're changing the conversation, and we are, I felt like menopause was such a taboo word just a few years ago, even. And now we say it so freely. And I have, I've seen women talk better in the workplace, even, which was something that you would not have heard of 10, 15, 20 or plus years ago. Yeah. So it's great that we're changing that. I mean, it's so crazy to think like, you know, we were socialized, our generation was socialized, like you can do whatever you want, but you kind of have to behave like a man to do it, 
right? Like it's a man's world. Start behaving like that. And I think that's where a lot of like, don't talk about your struggles with getting pregnant. Don't talk about your periods. Don't talk about menopause. And it's like, these are our bodies. This is what our bodies do. You're telling us to silence who we are. And I think now a lot of women are like, it's, this is natural. And it feels a heck of a lot better to know that other people are going through this also. Right. And so I think it's really wonderful that people are like, we're not going to silence what's naturally occurring in our body. We got to figure this out. We got to figure out how to stay productive and healthy and, and well cared for. And the more we speak about it, the more we create solutions, right? That's right. We create research, just awareness around it, ways to help each other, support each other. So I, I really do love that. I was just going to say, like, these are millions and millions of people. This is not like some niche autosomal recessive medical condition. Like, th this is half of the population if they're lucky enough to live past the age of 50. It's huge. And to silence half of your population is absolutely insane to me. Absolutely. I completely agree. What do you think has been the most successful in terms of? getting patients to feel comfortable about speaking up about their symptoms, whether it's to colleagues or friends or other women in general? I think seeing other people talk about it, like Michelle Obama's talked about it. She's talked about going on hormones. I think Oprah has. Naomi Watts is doing an amazing education thing now with her skincare line focused specifically on menopause skin, right? Like you go to the store and it's all this like anti-acne for oily skin stuff. And you're like, that's not how, what happens to our skin anymore. Our skin dries out. We lose collagen. We lose moisture, right? Like we're a huge market. But to see people of influence talk about it and there's more books and there's more podcasts, it's helping. Absolutely. What an amazing time to, to be a woman. I'm in my 30s and I'm, I'm just very excited that all these conversations are changing. I might be many years away from menopause, but the fact that I feel that by the time I get there, I can speak about it comfortably. The workplace will be different. It'll be more supportive and inclusive of women who are experiencing symptoms. I, I just love, I love what's happening. I think women are really defined by their ability to get pregnant, right? And like to realize that that is a small segment of your life. You couldn't get pregnant for a decade plus, and then you can for a couple of decades, and then you can't anymore. It is a segment of your life. It is not what defines you, defines your body, defines your worth, right? And really expanding that to be like, don't forget, we've got this other half of our life that's going to happen. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not necessarily an end or even a middle. We have many, many years after that to to thrive or sir thrive is what I had heard recently, sir thriving. If you had to give patients one piece of advice, any advice, doesn't have to be just about menopause or anything, just the most important thing that they can do for their health, what would it be? Don't drink alcohol. Don't smoke weed. Don't do drugs. Yes, that's a great one. But I've no, I learned, I learned, I live in the Pacific Northwest. I learned a long time ago. You, you don't tell them to give up their caffeine. <laughs> <laughs> Especially in the Pacific Northwest. You can keep it. You can keep your caffeine. Your bladder might not like it, but you can keep your caffeine. Um, I, you know, we, with the legalization of marijuana, so many people think it's healthy for you now. Like, oh, it's legal. It's healthy. I, and I think they think the same thing about alcohol. It's like I had a very young woman a couple of weeks ago. And uh, I'm like, why do you want to shrink your brain? And she kind of looked at me like nobody had ever been like, this is what you're doing. You realize you're shrinking your brain. Like we have so many studies on white matter, gray matter shrinking and like the association with dementia and like cognitive skills and let alone sleep. I just, I can't 
I can't when people are like, I want to be as healthy as I can, so I'm not going to take estrogen, but I need my my wine because it tastes good. And I'm like, you 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 don't understand how your body works then. And there's this culture, mom culture, wine culture, right? That we almost encourage the use of alcohol as a coping mechanism. For everything. I know. It's like, you're happy, drink. You're sad, drink. You're angry, drink. You're celebrating, drink. Like, it's really heavily. Once you understand, like, how it's marketed to women, too, right? It's the same, like, cigarettes. It was a men smoked cigarettes. And then they thought, well, here's this big market that isn't smoking cigarettes. So they specifically marketed cigarettes to women. They're doing the exact same thing with this mommy wine crap, right? And then once you see it as like, oh, they're just trying to get a bigger market, you're like, it's poison, you guys. It's poison. It it you you aren't present, right? If you're with your kids, you're you're not present. You're not as calm long term. It's horrible for anxiety and depression. Anybody who's like dealing with anxiety and depression should not be on alcohol, in my opinion. And I've like I've started getting so verbal about this because I think like the that opinion is just missing. Right. And so I'm like, fine, I'll be the opinion of like, if you truly care about your health, don't drink alcohol and the personal growth of becoming a person who doesn't drink alcohol. Right. But if you look at like really successful people, they're not drinking. Like, that's what's crazy about it is like, look, look at the really successful people. They don't drink alcohol. They've figured out it's not not helping them live their best life. So, yeah, I I get a little bit soapboxy about it because I just discovered this like two years ago. And uh, now I'm like, I don't, I don't think I'd ever go back. There's zero benefits to it. Yeah. You almost feel like you were swindled, right? Like the culture was so pervasive to drink alcohol. And then you realize that, wait, I don't have to be a part of that culture necessarily. I mean, thankfully in New York, there are so many mocktails and alternatives to, to alcohol now. And it's something that I've seen sort of explode over the last couple of years. There's so many alternatives. The good thing is it's trendy right now, which is awesome. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> Just like so many other things that, that happen to be good for your health, right? It's trendy. But if the consequences are better health, I love it. Yeah, totally. So tell our listeners where they can find your content and more importantly, your amazing podcast called You Are Not Broken. Yep. You Are Not Broken is the podcast. It's on all the major platforms. The book is called You Are Not Broken. Stop shooting all over your sex life. That's on Amazon. The audio book just came out, which I read. So that's super fun. And where can they find you? Do you have a website, an Instagram page? Kelly Casperson MD is the Instagram, the YouTube, and the website. Amazing. Thank you so much, Dr. Casperson, for your time. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. We would love to hear your thoughts. Visit our Instagram at the female pain docs for more content. Send us an email at thefemalepaindocs at gmail if you have any topics in particular you would like us to discuss. You can also visit our website at www.thefemalepaindocs.com. See you next time.